I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch says, this ain't no funeral home. This ain't no terror dome neither. Welcome to two white guys talking about tales from the hood, motherfucker. (laughs) Or hell. (laughs) I wonder how many fools it is that don't believe in ghosts. For most that have never seen a supernatural. For demons dwell where you sell your crack. And also where you kept your hoes. And those that are down to kill for their sets are possessed by Jesus from the depths. Rivals of the blessed. Can you feel anything, huh? I hope you can't move anything, you fool. Blood drips out of my body onto the concrete. <laughs> great, uh, great, great, but I think the more we can pat ourselves on the back early and often, I think the better this episode is going to go. Where we love to watch a movie podcast, we pick a theme. We do movies over the course of the month around that theme. And if we remember, we compare and contrast. We're in our second week of our most holy time of the year. Our, I don't know, sixth annual, seventh annual, Spooktober. I think it might be seventh annual, Peter. Jesus Christ. And we're doing a, a, a subject near and dear to our hearts. We're doing horror anthologies. We're in our second week. We kicked it off with probably the most iconic, classic, platonic ideal of a of a anthology horror movie. And we're following it up with, I think, uh, takes, has a good claim for second place from kind of this, it does everything that Creepshow does and it does it just as well. Uh, It does the horror anthology movie with one, one specific vision directed by the same person telling specific morality tales with a rapper and kind of in, in uh, inner situl segments that, that work really well together. Uh, it feels very relevant and likely we are not the right people to be talking about it. Uh, it's 1996's uh, Tales from the Hood directed by uh, Rusty uh, Kundiev. Kundiev? I think that's right. Yeah, I just say Rusty Kundiev. Uh, Kundif, uh, and uh, and written by Darren Scott, uh, executive produced by Spike Lee, uh, a movie that I uh, it's it's specifically a movie um, from a black perspective of those kind of morality tales, and it, it it's talking about subjects such as uh, uh, police violence against people of color, uh, America's history and obsession with slavery. And uh, sort of giving people that have supported slavery or uh, supported white supremacy a free pass and allow them to still exist within our our politics, like gang violence and the way and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, Peter and I are two white guys. Uh, Peter, at least, was is from Chicago. I'm from North Dakota for most of my life. Uh, I have no bona fides still. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're from the mean streets of Chicago, where where uh, Kevin McAllister lived. A lot of crooks. <laughs> a lot of crooks. Yeah, Uh, yeah. I think think the the thing for me is that we had the option of removing this from the roster. We haven't had guests in a while. Not yet, except except our kind of, yeah, we we, we haven't reached out to new guests. We have kind of four or five people that have just kind of been on the podcast a long time. But mainly that's just due to, I mean, this is our second episode we've recorded tonight. Not to to already sound like we're being too apologetic (laughs) for this, but... This has been this has been a more challenging year than normal for recording for us. And I, I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just that this isn't like first year of the pandemic where we were like four months ahead and I had a new baby. We've had very busy years. Um, and and so one of the things that we realized because we wanted to keep doing this as a weekly show was that like, OK, let's just hunker down with our kind of five or six people that we record with. And even that, like we just haven't recorded with them all that often this year either. 
Yeah, yeah. And our when we came to do an anthology horror month, we were saying what would be what would be segments that what would be movies that um, work as a complete movie. We, Abs- work is a complete movie and we absolutely would want to talk about for a full episode right it's not yeah. gonna be like one or two segments in them we think the overall movie itself is is it's fascinating good. and has yeah. something to say and it, it, it is like aesthetically really cool and like the idea that we would remove this from from the the the, sh- the roster for the that reason that like lack of perspective just kind of bugged me. I was like, but people should know about Tales from the Hood. It's an awesome... It's a great it's, movie. It's an awesome movie. Um, I think we'll probably work to like... I'll probably find another podcast that's maybe has more uh, black co-hosts or black guests on that could talk about it with a little bit more... Yeah. Which, more exposure that we could we could prop up. Um, Aaron and I will talk about that after we record this episode a little bit more. But um i think the goal here is like i don't want to we have we have the ability to like uh if people haven't seen this movie encourage them to see a movie that's made by black creators and like it rules like it's, it's so just fun it's just fucking fun to talk about like and i don't want to not talk about it just because like we lack some crucial perspective i think yeah and we definitely lack that perspective and as peter mentioned i i also think like this is one of those areas where being a relatively small podcast heard by a few hundred people every week serves us somewhat well. Like, I don't think we're taking a spotlight away from someone more, more, more relevant. Talk about that. Likely, uh, you know, we, we hopefully again are, are getting our, our, our small listener base who does, who we love, uh, and who listens, uh, to, to seek out this movie if they haven't, because I'm someone who is a huge horror fan. I saw this for the first time, like three or four spooktobers ago. And mm-hmm. I, I, I it's reputation, and some of that is just like video store reputation, growing up reputation. I feel like is was bad. I, I this this movie had no like cultural imprint that I was aware of growing up again in North Dakota. But you know, I think there there's a lot of those movies uh, like Bones, which is another movie I haven't seen. That kind of becomes like, oh, it's kind of a shitty movie. It's a shitty movie with Snoop Dogg, and so that makes it like a to use the the language that most of the reviews of the time called it urban horror or something like that, or like you know Leprechaun. What is it? Back to the Hood or something like that, or what? What is that Leprechaun movie? Uh, 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 leprechaun, and I think it's something in the like, hood. Like, it's like maybe it's just maybe But there was there there was a lot of those types of movies that were again. There's a lot of bad horror movie all the way around, but that were just I think kind of like capitalizing and a lot of times from white creators on like black and urban culture and saying like oh we should put. You know, this this would be fun to do for for because kids love Snoop Dogg and then people think Snoop Dogg is cool. And so we'll put him in our horror movie and stuff like that. And uh, some of those were definitely made by black creators, some some not. But I think a lot of them have a mixed reputation for a variety of reasons. And when I saw this four years ago, just like, a, oh, I'd heard some good things recently. I think the shout Blu-ray had got released and I saw a couple of reviews. This blew me away. Like, I don't know how a movie this good 
has somehow escaped that uh, the public conscious as like one of the best horror movies of the '90s, one of the best anthology movies of the of all time, and a movie that has only increased in relevancy, I think, since it's come out. Which the creators talk about on the documentary on the Shout Blu-ray, which I which I watched as well. Like this movie feels like a fucking gut punch in the same way good horror, good social commentary horror does, and it it. Peter's 100% right. Like, we're definitely not the best people to talk about it, but I do think it's a shame that people don't talk about this movie enough. And so I, at at, at a minimum, if you've never seen this, it's 100% worth seeing. And it is just fucking, again, one, it's not one of the best, like, uh, you know, quote unquote, black horror movies of all time. It's just one of the best horror movies I've, I've yeah. ever seen. Like, Yeah. And, and, and this is also a crucial part of the conversation. Like, I think there's a there's a, a stereotype in um, horror um, conversations that um, if you're going to make a, a movie about the black experience, especially in this era, it's got to be goofy. Yeah. And then two, um, less harmful, more silly, um, is uh, that there's no good 90s horror movies. Um, yeah. This movie and Candyman are like two of the most crucial, I think, horror movies of the past 30 years. Uh, and yet um, are kind of like... I don't know, like, they, they don't they don't necessarily get the same, um, this one definitely doesn't get the same sort of representation in those converse, in either of those conversations, um, because they're both very much about, like, the suffering and the ethics of being a black person in modern America. Yeah. Uh, the difference is that, while I think Candyman is really great, and there's probably some drawbacks to it being directed by a white guy, this one is written, directed, produced by black men. Yep. Yeah, and it's um, it's it's an angry movie, and it's an angry movie that's coming off like a you know a mid decade point of a lot to be angry at if you're a black person in America, and that's true of every decade. But I think in a way that like there's a, there was a visibility beyond the black community uh, with with the Rodney King beating and other things that this movie is very directly directly reacting uh, to and commenting on from a from a horror or a morality tale tale perspective and yeah my, my i mean i have a very clear first memory of this movie is um when i was in maybe like seventh grade i was i don't remember the circumstances like a theater group or something um that i was a part of they did like a day where they we had a party at someone's house and we played like normal like junior high like high school like um games and then they had rented a bunch of movies that they thought were going to be horrible um, and they thought it'd be, you know, again, let's watch the dumbest movies we can find at the video store. I didn't pick them out. Uh, <laughs> but I I don't remember all of them. And I, I just, but I do remember this being one of them. Like we got Tales from the Hood and everyone kind of laughing because we thought it's going to be, you know, again, something silly. I do remember what's funny, Peter, is I do remember what movie we ended up watching. I don't remember the other like three or four picks. I think we did one of those five for five for five movie deals. But we ended up watching Leonard Part Six. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> that, no, that was that was appropriately bad, uh, as expected. Uh, uh, I'm I, in some ways I'm glad we didn't watch Tales from the Hood because I, with, knowing that this is a fantastic movie, not a Leonard, but not does not deserve to be in the same uh, same uh, breath as Leonard Part Six. Uh, I wonder if I would have, uh, you know 
but being in the mode to watch a shitty movie, I wonder if I would have uh, not not seen this for the movie that it was at the time. But regardless, uh, I didn't watch it. And again, didn't did not think anything of it. It is kind of insane how this movie has only started to get some sort of like horror and cultural appreciation in the last few years. I think Scream Factory probably has some, you know, putting together a special edition and remastering it and getting a lot of the original creators and actors. The Peter, do you have the do you have the Scream Factory Blu-ray by any chance? Oh, yeah, it's rad. It's got Did a you really watch great... Did you watch the hour long like making of special? Oh. I, I love uh, Rusty and Darren hanging out. Oh, yeah. Because um, I'm sure making the movie was super stressful for them. Because, like, you know, making movies on this budget and having to do multiple segments is very stressful. Um, they are, they seem like buds. I know they're working together again because of... Because um, they're doing, the, they're the doing the sequels. Yeah, that, um, that are... I, I know the second one was people didn't like it and were really bummed about that. I haven't seen either of them. I do know that they said that... Um, they, I, I, they, they speak very highly of the third one where they're, where I they're, haven't seen the third one yet, where they're but I, I saw two and it wasn't very good. They're saying like, we figured out how to make horror stories that we think are good on the budgets that we're able to get for these movie, which we didn't figure out for two. So, yeah. they, so, so I, I'm curious about watching three. I'll probably skip uh skip two but i, I love it it's just, but it was really amazing i think though peter is that like you know they there's a lot of actors in these movies in in these segments that are you know like you're like oh i recognize him as the guy that george keeps screwing over on seinfeld or something like that it's kind of amazing that they get all of the actors for the most part back to talk about all the different segments yeah yeah i think a lot of people were proud to be um in this and and this movie kind of paired with the um horror noir uh, documentary on Shutter, and I think now that's a an extended sort of TV show, if I'm not mistaken. No, they made a the, there's an anthology. I'm I'm planning to watch it this year. So they didn't make a TV show. They made like a anthology horror movie called Horror Noir. I did, oh I didn't know that's what it was. I'll yeah. have to get to that for sure. But the the documentary Horror Noir is great. Um, is really really good, and um, the the sort of affection and love in in that one uh, from getting old, like old friends together. Um, you also have that in this because I think for, I think Rusty and Darren still like each other, which is not necessarily true of a lot of productions, yeah. especially between um, a writer and a director. Um, I think at the end of a lot of these productions, they hate each other. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but yeah, it's a good, it's a good, do- it's a good documentary, and like most of the things that I'll say uh, in this episode that are sort of like you know behind the scenes stuff, it's it's directly from that really good, yeah, like fifty something documentary. I think you know the the one thing that's very interesting about this movie, um, that's like it it really is you, you're going to hear about this a lot uh, from us during this. But it's it's based it's it's a movie that's very much based on its time, uh, as I mentioned, like the idea of like you know cops uh, beating uh, and killing a, a black person to death and and having you know some repercussions that need to come of that, but also a movie that unfortunately, like I, I said, is is even more relevant. Like and the, and and Rusty and Darren talk about it with a lot of melancholy and sadness. They kind of say that like. We were talking about things that were happening at our time and the fact that we can watch this movie or people watch this movie and recognize their own world, you know, 30 years later is a huge bummer for us. As we watch so many movies, Peter, 
and horror movies that had, you know, when we talked about Night of the Living Dead or whatever else, where these these movies that are specifically using horror and genre cinema to address racism or sexism or misogyny or transphobia or, you know, uh, uh, or, or homophobia or whatever else it is, and they're made 30 or 40 years ago, and it, it feels like an, a reaction to an of-its-time piece, and it feels so relevant. There's there's a sadness that I think comes from that, and I re- one of the reasons I really like the documentary, too, is that, like, you have the creators openly addressing that. Like, they're saying, like, there is there's a lot of sadness in watching this movie for us because... It is as relevant as it was when we were making it, which seems insane to us. Yeah, the guy the guy makes a joke that's a I think it's a perfect version of the it's a better version of the joke that I keep making. Um, Darren keeps makes a joke that's a perfect version of the joke I keep making, which is like unfortunately relevant. Um, he's like, and yeah, it was about uh, uh, domestic violence and uh, cops uh, cops killing black people and you know uh, gang violence and. You know, uh, I, I it's nice that people still want to watch this movie because we've solved all those issues, so they're <laughs> yeah. not a problem anymore. Uh, it's like, <laughs> it's like I love, I, I love that 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 is actually an encapsulation of the spirit of the movie, which is like it's angry, but it's like witty and funny, and uh, it, 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 it like has a sense of playfulness that like makes this movie stand up. Um, it stands the test of time like it's not so focused on being an angry serious message movie that it's not afraid to embrace the best tropes of the horror genre which is like you know practical effects gore effects like you know escalation of of tone and it, it does all that like incredibly well while still being grounded in both calling out the, the lack of equality um, at the time, but also their own experience. I forget if it's Darren or Rusty who tells the story of like where they got the David Allen Greer, the monster story from. It's terrifying. It's terrifying in a, in a vacuum. And it's even more terrifying that it's like, you can understand why that made them want to tell this story, that there's, there's something even more terrifying about like a child abuse from the perspective of there's nothing you can do about it because you're a uh, because you're black in America. And I'll, I'll tell that story really quick before we get into the actual segment. But uh, so one of the stories is about a, a, uh, a kid at school who's being attacked by a monster and being abused by basically um, his, his stepdad. It kind of being partially ignored because of, uh, of because no one, no one really cares at this school. Like why, why a, a black kid is coming in abused or hurt because no one pays attention except his, one of his teachers, who is like also a uh, a person of color, and uh, takes special attention to try to figure out what's going on and solve the issue, and then that that's that's the story in the movie, which is a great segment. We'll talk about it. That comes from a real story of I think it's Rusty, no Darren. Sorry, it's Darren who is the writer who, when he was a kid, hanging out with some white friends. One, he opened a door and his friend's little sister who was seven years old was hogtied in a room um, and being like abused clearly by the parents. And and Darren went and told his dad, who was a detective and who was a cop, like theoretically someone who um, who had the ability to do something about about it. And he had to explain with sadness to his son that there wasn't a world where he was going to be able to or uh, was going to be able to introduce this to this wealthy family in a way that wouldn't end up hurting their family as opposed to helping 
this other. And like just that recognition of like that literally, you know, Darren having to learn that his that because of the way America is structured, that even attempting to help a white person, um, that that they that they were not welcome even to make uh, life better or save people from uh, from outside of their own of their own race and how horrifying that feeling was. Yeah, it's a it's a terrifying story because it's 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 about and it, it sort of informs, I think, both um, the first two segments because. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that was his idea for doing a movie like this, like what what it was like to feel the horror of like the, the as he said, like, at the you know, the the feelings of helplessness within being a part of the black community in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that uh, Darren Scott, he'd previously done um, from a whisper to a scream, which is a sort of like a classic style anthology horror movie. It's it's focused. Uh, I think almost, I, haven't, I haven't seen it, but I think. At peeking at wikipedia i think all the stories are kind of just about like white people um yeah. vincent, vincent price is in it um i'm gonna check it out uh, in, he, uh he's technically the mascot of white people yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's he's a he's a clown of, of, of he's like of white, he's, yeah he's 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 somewhat charming but has a dark side <laughs> yeah exactly um but uh, Darren alcoholic. Scott worked on that one. I'm absolutely going to watch that um, yeah. this month. He brought what his sensibilities were, at least from his recollection, was he's like, I'm going to bring like an entertainer spirit um, to this to this project. And then Rusty had done like theater productions had done things that were a little bit more politically focused. And the way that they kind of think about it, even though they both probably were of, of like minds about how to bring these messages to people, is that like Rusty was the one with like the fire and the and the the philosophy, and then Rusty was or sorry, and then uh, Darren was the one who was like, I want to make this like an actual production that like people want to see. Like I want this to be an entertaining piece of like horror horror film. And I think bringing those two kind of like vibes together is is uh, is why the movie fucking works. But even within that, Darren brought in the the terrifying real life story that informed i think the first two segments yeah yeah that feeling of helplessness in these situations where like the the systemic levers of power are completely just unbendable to justice for 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 certain segments of our society and like this movie taps into that at its best very well while still like you said being a very funny, functional, scary, gory horror movie. No, I think you're right. And I think the way that to think about this, especially as I'm glad we did this after Creepshow, because we talked about how Creepshow has sort of like a complicated, like each segment has its own strange mythology. Some of it's straight up biblical, some of it is straight up nihilist, and some, and it's, you know, it's all, all over in between, you know? Um, in this, it feels like there's the world of the white man, and that's sort of a banal passive evil that just sort of like you know uh, creeps in at all times right cops just show up ba you know uh white patriarchy just kind of shows up it what it feels like it's it's tapping into is that that supernatural force of justice in this is what if actual ethics popped up <laughs> what if something actually you know somewhat ethically sound could could uh could act as a force of of good 
um, or at least a force of justice. Maybe yeah, not to, good, to cor- a force of justice. Yeah, the to the, sort of try and bend bend back the 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 way. The the problem, you know, not the problem, but not the problem with the movie, but like the problem is like very often those situations, even with that sense of justice, they still end with um, black people suffering. It's just that um, it, it, very often it ends with at least the perpetrators of of white patriarchal violence dying. Uh, the people that the people that are, are causing the chaos on Earth get their just punishments on Earth um, very often in uh, in these segments, and I feel like that is a form of justice in these movies that they don't often get it. The anthology horror movies, I mean, they don't often get into because they're they're always about cheating and uh, you know murder because you hate somebody for a very personal reason. They're not often about like this ethical judgment coming down um because of a true like societal wrong yeah and i think i would i would align these movies or this movie specifically tales from the hood more with like something like like uh, a woman directed horror movie like the xx is, is an example where like it's, I think, they're very I think often it's about sex i mean the xx has some good hits but i think it's a very different thing oh yeah you're right it's just xx um <laughs> but uh um when forces of, 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 like, white male oppression are, like, stepping on your neck, like, this movie is about specifically, like, uh, some sort of cosmic force stepping in and, and breaking those rules in some capacity. Um, XX does not have that clean sort of, those clean sort of moral lines the way that this does. And that actually makes Tales from the Hood, like, more fun and rewatchable, and it's a movie yeah. I watched a bunch, because it's because like, it's oh, those guys suck so much, I can't wait for them to yeah. get their heads taken off. 100%. <laughs> like... There is something incredibly satisfying to see, like, Corbin Burnson's, like, fucking former KKK rich, powerful politician who gets away with everything to see him, like, you know, murdered by by the same forces that he's, uh, that he's worked to oppress for generationally for centuries. Like, there's a satisfaction in that. There's a satisfaction to seeing, like, a fucking evil, like... Just unquestionably evil police officer who's pissing on the dead grave of like a social justice warrior, not meant in a in a derogatory way, uh, who they murdered in cold blood because he was trying to advance like civil rights for black people. Um, and they're pissing on his grave on the anniversary of death. Like it's satisfying to see uh, uh, that that cop's balls get ripped off. Like, uh, yeah. They, I exactly. mean, those those things are like viscerally satisfying in, in the same way that like I you know I don't get a visceral satisfaction to to reference Creepshow of seeing like Leslie Nielsen or Adrian Barbeau or any of those characters. Like it's like sometimes it's like oh yeah they got you in the end and I like the horror effect, but. You're right, Peter. Like this, in the same way, when at, in Get Out, when he gets a chance to kill all those people, like that have been just like unambiguously racist and evil. There's a, there's a satisfaction in that. Like there's there's no ambiguity that uh, that the cops or Corbin Burnson uh, or the abusive dad are anything but der- uh, worthy of like you know a horror movie's version of justice. Yeah, yeah, a- absolutely. And uh, that's why I've watched this movie a bunch and I've shown it to people. And like, I'm not like, 
I'm not I'm not saying it's a perfect movie, but it brings unique perspective to the to horror genre, horror cinema in general. It brings a unique perspective to anthology horror movies and usually like the moralizing behind them. Like what if we made the moralizing specific to ills and problems of today? Um, it brings like a unique perspective to just like cinema in general, like art in general, because like it's it's talking about these issues, but in like a like a, a fun, like charismatic back and forth kind of way that like um, I think is like it's like a crucial part of having these conversations with via art is like finding ways to make the the, 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 the actual piece of art like compelling. Right. Because like. We spend a lot, I mean, if you're not an asshole, probably, um, you probably have spent a good portion of the past few years at a minimum reading black perspectives on um, cop problem. What what the fuck, what the fuck do we do about this cop problem? How do we get rid of cops? How do we, how do we manage um, to get this done via community action? How do we get this done via community action? Because cops aren't doing it. Um like, you've probably been reading all that shit for the past few years. And, like, those conversations are direct. They're to the point. They're focused on community yeah. action. They're focused on uh, interpreting the news in a strict, strict way. Un- understanding mean- your own, like, unconscious biases and all the other stuff. Like, yeah. Um, there's There's been a ton of good books just in the last, like, ten years around all that stuff, too. Yeah, exactly. And, like, the the, the point that I'm making here is that, like, not every one of these conversations that we have needs to be expressed in this like clean respectable format that you know it's it's a twitter thread with uh, perfect grammar and in, in a specific order or a a book published uh, and yeah. reaches the top of the new york times seller list like that is those are all viable important things that like all of us should be engaging with however it's also good to have these conversations in like more of a like a space that like makes these sort of perspective stick yeah i think that like pop pop culture cinema and music and it's just sometimes like it takes like a moment for it to like feel emotionally resonant is is through art Um, yeah john i mean genre cinema genre fiction is one of the best tools i think for driving a point home like this is not this is not not breaking new ground saying it we've talked about it a lot whether it's night of the living dead to to really like address misogyny and racism of like of like the sixties under the guise of a horror movie or like, you know, the 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 reference everyone thinks about. Like couldn't talk about racism on Star Trek. What if they go to a planet and show the ridiculousness of racism? Like something ele- something more basic and elementary than what happens today. But like that is such a like being able to recognize a a real world issue in a fictional situation, whether it's, you know, direct or, you know, subtle or whatever else is like, you know, I think in some ways that's like how people build their morality, right? Like, I don't, you know, I, I got some of my morality from my parents, some of the not so good stuff either. I, I think I got some, we talked about this like a long time ago. I think I got more of my more useful morality from watching fucking Muppet related stuff like Sesame Street and, you know, or other like PBS shows like Mr. Rogers. Like, yeah, so I, I agree, Peter, like you're right. Not everything needs to be a serious work. Not everything needs to be 12 years a slave, even though I you know love that movie as well. But like you can you can show these things in a way of genre cinema. I think the real crime in all this is that like a combination of two things that has been talked about a lot, too. One, that 
stuff like Tales from the Hood is a rarity, right? Like there's just not that many. This 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 only got you know this got a seven million dollar budget, executive produced by Spike Lee, had a theatrical release. Like uh, it did it did double its budget, which is not you know not not nothing for a for a low budget '90s horror movie. As you mentioned, Peter, there's a lot of other black horror movies from this era that had only you know tangential relationship to black creators. Um, so the fact that you know this is such a unique object for its time is lamentable. And then combination of that is because that some of these things are unique objects of their time because you know black creators weren't weren't given as many opportunities to make these types of movies as white creators. That that the ones that do exist feel like they they need to say something about the black experience as opposed to just being, uh, you know, black creators that make a horror movie. Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a really good point, and um, like that that's you know no, yet another reason why this movie is 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 actually really important. Uh, yeah. To to uh, horror cinema. Yeah. So do we want to get into? Yeah. Let's let's, let's get to the let's, let's get to the fun. Let's get to the segments. Yeah. Uh, Peter, you want to talk more about tales from the hood? Absolutely. I know it sounds bad, but it's so good. These are things, tales from the desert. I know it sounds bad, but it's so good. These are things, tales from the desert. I know it sounds bad, but it's so good. These are things, tales from the desert. I know it sounds bad, but it's so good. Check this out. Well, it's a Sunday night. In my hood, show you by. But the players and hustlers know we gonna get that ass tonight. So we can roll out to the town. So Peter, let's talk about the wraparound section to kick off. This has a fantastic wraparound section. And a wraparound section, it actually, what it reminded me most of is a movie that we're not going to talk about, but was the first Amicus horror movie, which is uh, Dr. Terror's House of Horror. Yeah. Where, um... You are getting to know the in that movie. There's people on a train that are kind of telling their stories um, of what happened to them that that ended up on the tr- that got them on the train. They're all you know horror short stories as as you would find in an anthology. And at the end of that, you find out that they are actually like all their stories end with them in a questionable way. And I think at the end of the movie, they're kind of like, well, wait. You did something not so great, and how did how did we all end up on this train when we've either committed these atrocities or or been the victim of atrocities and stuff like that? And you find out that the 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 train is a one way ticket to hell, Peter, and that's what the wraparound story here really reminds me of in a very positive way because you end up having a three youths who go to this funeral home thinking that the funeral parlor um, uh, proprietor. Uh, is a is a is a secret drug dealer, and they're trying to um, to uh, buy drugs. And meanwhile, he's going through the funeral parlor and showing them dead bodies. And he's very theatrical and very over the top. And you know, the kids are kind of just getting annoyed with him. Like, just give us the drugs, man. Like, why do you keep showing us all this stuff? But he's he's showing them bodies and telling them the horrific stories. And all of them have some sort of supernatural bent of how they ended up in this condition or why they're here or, or why why they're dead. And then, you know, fast the, the final story, which we'll get into, uh, tails into their into their story and then has a fun, great, like almost the exact same twist as Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, but has that kind of twist where um, 
our uh, storytellers or our, our three what we think are protagonists in the funeral parlor are the people who this movie's been focused on and their their punishment for their crimes that we see in the the final uh, vignette. Yeah, yeah, and, and Clarence Williams the third uh, is so good in this. He's so uh, good. Apparently, the inspiration was uh, it was some comedy movie. Uh, it was it was uh, I'm trying to remember. He was, but, but essentially, Darren Scott was in, inspired by some sort of comedy movie of of somebody just being um, in, incredibly like bouncing off the walls with energy. And he was like, "What if I made my the like sort of villain have this?" live wire energy where you never know when he's gonna start yelling and he might just start whispering and then his eyes will go like dead because he's just like staring off thinking about something very deep and scary and they treat him kind of like a clown at first yeah um because they're kind of just like stone just give us the three of them their own they're 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 armed and they're just like three guys alone in this house with this guy like they know no matter what happens they can get what they want and get out right worst case scenario they they uh wasted a night right yeah and they're very 90s like um black youth archetype right like the fine you yeah. find in menace to society or tales from the hood right like i assume this is la feels like it's la if not that's the implication uh and they're yeah they're just they're they're in a gang and they're selling drugs yeah yeah and um the, the, i can't really describe his performance because it is such like a a, a, a goofball like energy but it's like it's goofball uh, right into the point it isn't which is why it's so good it's yes and and it does kind of have that leslie nielsen thing a little bit i think you know maybe david allen greer's performance has it more but it does kind of have that leslie nielsen thing a little bit terrifying this movie yeah but like the The fourth lead of mikhail's navy is terrifying <laughs> but uh I would say Clarence Williams the third in this is like it kinda has that Leslie Nielsen thing where like a lot of the lines are like funny and then once you kinda like know the context or you like imagine yourself in the room, you're like, Oh, that's really creepy. <laughs> yeah, and he's telling these incredibly like I mean, we're we're seeing the the short films, but he's telling these incredibly graphic stories of people being burned to death and twisted beyond rec- uh, recognition and kind of showing them their bodies. I think under any context, if you went to a funeral home to pick something up and the guy like walked around, like like if you delivered a pizza to a funeral home, he's like, I'll get your tip money. But before that, I want to show you how all these dead people died. I think that would be an uncomfortable experience under any circumstance. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and in general, like, you know, funeral homes are creepy. So. You're off to a good yeah, start. Yeah, they keep dead it bodies that they play it with, remi- I think, for a little bit. Is there a thing? Oh, a twisted world. What a bunch of goofs. And they're like, what if I, uh, I mean, my 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 daughters put makeup on dolls sometimes. Like, they don't want to make a career out of it and replace the dolls with dead bodies. <laughs> Sick fucks. Absolutely. What if I told my kids that was a job they could have? Like, you, know how, <laughs> you know how, like, you like putting makeup on lifeless things? What if you make a career out of it? <laughs> Get out there and make some money. Yeah, for this family. My kid, my Maya gets it though because she saw my girl. <laughs> <laughs> what was that? Good what was parents. that horror movie a few years ago? We both loved about the Undertaker. Um, oh, Mortuary store. Collection. Mortuary Collection. Yeah, I was trying to. Come we, up with yeah, we could have done that for this month. I'm sure we'll end up doing a sequel month to this at some point. But Mort- yeah, because this is this is great. This is great too fun. Yeah. 
but yeah, so the first segment walks up to uh, a you know dead body. First segment is called uh, Rogue Cop Revelation. Um, and it's about Clarence, uh, who's a black cop in a force that seems to be all white, except for him. Um, they uh, are part of a detail that's pulling over a uh, like a black activist. Yeah, black rights activist, uh, yep. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't. It's not a clear, you know, uh, mime of any specific activist. It's just he's well. Just no, he's like, specifically uh, working to eliminate uh, police corruption and racism within the force. Yeah, sorry, no. He, but he's not like he's not like a a specific like figure. It's sort of like no. a pan over of you know a bunch of different no, he's, activist he's figures, the, murdered activist figures. Yeah, he's he's up for the promotion to uh, traveling secretary for the Yankees. I think. Uh, but George Costanza screws him over. I had no idea what the wife. fuck you were talking Sorry. about for a minute. Uh-huh. No, that's, I mean, that's the only thing I, the actor who plays him, the only other thing I know. And he's in it for like, he's in it for like a minute, and now I remember exactly what you're But I mean, I've about. seen Seinfeld so many times, he does have that great thing where he's like, you screwed me over again, Costanza. It's where he has the, the pulp in his eye, and he keeps winking and fucking him over. <laughs> accidentally like fucks about a promotion his wife leaves him because he's like oh yeah the conference and he winks uncontrollably and he is it's the one time where george is very much trying not to screw someone over because he doesn't want the promotion he wants this other guy to get it and then he keeps winking himself into a promotion with more work and ruins his (laughs) life yeah great episode pop can Uh, move baby <laughs> but this this is uh but yeah like the, these dirty cops pull over this community activist um who's specifically about like cleaning up the force he actually has a line that's like very interesting from a 2022 perspective because he's not an a cab guy um like i think everyone has now um and uh which is uh nothing again i have nothing against good cops is what he says which is like i think sort of like the politically correct line of the time yeah which is, like i mean it's still something from a like a mainstream politician perspective, it's still the politically correct line. Even though, as I point out to people all the time, it's not an original observation. But like when people say there's bad apples, it's like finish the goddamn phrase. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> bad apples ruin the bunch. It's not. It's not if you get a few bad apples, you pick them out, and the rest are good apples worth eating. It's not the goddamn saying. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah. Um, and the uh, but, but but this they, uh, this actually demonstrates that there aren't good apples. Like I actually think like even though that's the 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 activist line, the whole point is that there's one kind of maliciously evil cop, right? But then everyone else on the force is supporting him because you don't go against the other guys on the force. So that allows these fucking, which is true of our you know real police too. It it'll or like even you know the. You know, George Floyd case recently here in here in Minneapolis and obviously understandable national news story. It wasn't just that the the guy killed him. It was that there was three other cops on the scene who watched it happen and then lied about it on the police report. And thank God they're also getting charged. But that's a rarity. It, that person hadn't been filming. Right. Like the police report says he had a medical emergency while attempting an arrest. And then three other cops back up that story. Like that's yeah, that's, I, I, that's the story. And the reason they thought they could get away with it is because it happens every day. Happens every day. Um, yeah, it's not. It wasn't. It likely wasn't a notable point in their their lives. Yeah, and the ridiculous part isn't that they kill him. Like that's that's not um, that's not the ridiculous part. Like that that's ha- that happens every day. Yeah, they plant the, the drugs on that, him and they push him. But off. the reason, yeah, the reason that they the reason that it's ridiculous and it rises to uh, you know maybe a little bit of like a horror. Uh, uh, you know, gothic level um, is that they 
plant drugs on him and then crashes wa- his his car in the water to make it look like he was a heroin addict. And yeah, like, so they ruined, all that. Whereas, ruined like, his, uh, his fight, his cause, too. And, and I'm not saying cops don't do that. All I'm saying is that cops usually aren't that clever and can get away with it with just basic, just... Yeah, they just shoot him in broad daylight. <laughs> yeah. Say they were scared. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, these that's what these cops do. They kill this guy, Morehouse. And uh, the Clarence, who's the, the cop, is uh, is just horrified by this. Um, and uh, it, he drops out of the force. He becomes uh, alcoholic. He loses, like, the job as house, all of that. But not like, uh, you know, a, the alcoholic that uh, most cops are. Um, <laughs> the kind of alcoholic where you don't go to work. Yeah, the uh, kind of alcoholic so. where you feel guilt. Yeah. Um, and he uh, he uh, is, is, is spoken to by either one of two things. One, some sort of internal sense of, of justice that he wants to enact. Or two, he's spoken to by like a literal spirit of the murdered guy. And the regardless, he brings these cops, he calls to them who they know he they have uh, dirt. He has dirt on them because he was there that night. He didn't actually see the guy get killed, but he saw the guy get beaten. Yeah. But, but and, they're they're feeling a little bit safe because again, like, uh, which again, how actual cops function? Like, hey, if you didn't report it at the time, we talked you out of it, and now if you report it, you're going to be in just as much trouble as us. Yeah, yeah, and he he uh, basically is like he's stuck in this awful catch twenty two because that's like how being a police officer with how that's how the good cops are right is like you get caught in this awful 22 catch 22 and guess what happens pretty quickly you're not a good cop anymore yeah um so he he takes them to morehouse's grave in the cemetery he's fully loaded and he's raving and they they're just like maybe we have to kill this guy too now that he's just a citizen we could probably get away with it and he's black so we could probably get away with it and so they start fucking with him they piss on morehouse's grave one of them the second one pisses on Morehouse's grave after being hesitant, and then the grave uh, the the grave explodes. Morehouse reaches up, and I think he grabs this guy by the dick. yeah, he grabs him by the dick, tears yeah. him, tears him, drags him into the grave, explodes out, holding the dude's beating heart. You sort of see like what the plan was, which is that like Cl- Clarence was like, all I have to do is get the cops there, and then Morehouse Morehouse's spirit, this vengeful spirit, will take care of it. And uh, he chases them down and pretty quickly uh, eviscerates them, the, uh, the spirit of Morehouse. And uh, he, uh, uh, he, he, he uh, one cop uh, blows up, uh, Clarence's former partner, blows up uh, the cop car that Morehouse's spirit is standing on top of him. And then he starts ranting and raving, I killed him, I killed him, sort of an ironic, ironic piece of dialogue, yeah. right? Like... He's like, it's over. Like, I killed him. Like, he's just kind of having a meltdown. But, you know, he's also admitting to his culpability in the crime. Um, and he, uh, he uh, at, at this moment, uh, becomes m- murdered by Morehouse and turned into part of this uh, amazing mural yeah. on the wall. Well, they throw hyperdemic needles at him and he kind of explodes with... Oh, yeah, he gets, like, crucified against the He gets the crucified wall. with the needles, with the drugs that they were falsely planted. And then, yeah... Turns into a mural as kind of a warning. Yeah, yeah, and it's uh, and then Clarence is not really off the hook because Clarence was conflicted at the time. Uh, you know that's not that's not enough. Like yeah, you know, 
Morhouse's spirit isn't just angry that he was murdered, right? Like, and more, and the fact that he in life was a fairly peaceful, apparently pretty liberal centrist, judging by the language he was using, um, sort of reformer. Like, even with that, he is he 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 casts uh, a, a smaller version of justice onto Clarence, and Clarence goes. Uh, mentally ill Clarence goes ranting and raving and he goes into you know sort of an an asylum style you know like that sort of uh, classic ending um and he's ranting and raving and the people outside think that he killed all those yeah they just say that yeah oh he used to be a cop and he killed three cops one night Yeah, yeah and the last thing Moore says to him is where were you when I needed you brother um yeah because it's that's the point of the story is that he's it's not just that you know bad cops get get punished for being evil it's that like we all carry moral culpability for letting bad things happen. And, you know, even if you couldn't stop the bad thing from happening, not try, uh, you know, not coming to coming forward and not facing justice and not trying to do the right thing as hard as it is, mm-hmm. is in itself a sin. It's a, it, it maybe it's a lesser sin, but it's still it, it's a it's a cosmic sin that needs to be corrected. And it doesn't matter if you were a good cop, if you didn't come forward and and try and get justice for somebody who deserved it, then you weren't a good cop. Yeah. So I look th- there's something I want to mention that, that that calls out I think the last story calls this out as well. And I, I'm not saying this in a way that like and this may be the ultimate cop out, but really, this is probably the one area where I feel like uh, it's not that I'm afraid to have a perspective. I really don't have a perspective of how some of this part is like viewed from this day. Like, I am legitimately not qualified and would likely need to, uh, again, read a lot more and then, you know, defer to people more. But, like, I do think this movie, and again, I'm saying this not as a judgment, but just as a statement of fact. Oh, I hope that's enough qualifiers for everyone. Um, but like this, this segment with Clarence getting his comeuppance and being judged just as harshly for his inaction to stop an injustice, and then the final segment, which is really about like, hey, like you kids in the black community are causing damage to the black community that is those are areas that the movie's calling out there's a lot of stuff about racism and evil and like all that understandably like cops being terrible and white white supremacy and you know the proliferation the kkk there also is some of this in in classic like horror uh morality tale fashion that puts some of the blame for some of the injustices that are happening uh, on uh, our, our characters of color in this movie. So that is an area where I feel enormously unqualified to talk about, right? Like there's a lot of writing about it. There was a lot at the time. This is definitely the era of like fucking Bill Cosby saying stuff that's been thankfully like demonized about like, you know, where, he, you know, Bill Cosby went to the point where, Besides all the other horrible stuff he did that basically, like, blame as, – as I, I recently watched that documentary, like, uh, We Need to Talk About Cosby, which is very good. Um, but talked about how, like, you know, basically, as they say it, like, in his later years, post-Cosby shows started blaming black people for their own oppression. So that's where it gets, like, tough for me to talk about what the filmmakers are trying to say and just note that I, I do think there is a little bit of, like, uh, Clarence gets his comeuppance because it's a horror movie – but also like that is that is um he he's he's fighting a system that he's like what 
his options are like he doesn't have good options. If he tries to fight or you know not go just to to stop the injustice there, he's likely going to get killed by those cops anyways, which is what they try to do later on in the movie when he does try to say something. So it's one of those things where I don't know how much the movie is pointing into a cycle of violence that society creates. I don't know if the movie is trying to say like there's a culpability among among some of these characters in the movie, like the kids at the end or Clarence here. I, I honestly don't know, and I definitely am not qualified to lend my own judgment on it. Yeah, yeah, I have some, I have some, some sort of like um, a cultural gap there as well with the last segment, which is. And even in the interviews, Rusty and Darren still use the term black on black crime, um, which is a like a white supremacist dog whistle term that like got turned into a mainstream news term. And it it dominated the news until I mean, it still sort of pops up every now and then. Yeah. But is is that our like is that our perspective of like the way it has been used as as a white supremacy dog whistle as opposed to like people in their own community trying to build better? And so that's where like, yeah, yeah. The thing I'll say here is that here's just just facts. People always kill people within their racial group. <laughs> yeah, it's just how things work. Statistics bear this out. <laughs> there's not is there's not any more of a black on black crime problem than there is a white on white crime problem than there is a an Asian American on Asian. Yeah, because most people kill problem. people they know. They kill people they know, yeah. and because America is a deeply uh, segregated, segregated country, country yeah. you do tend to you are not going to get killed. Statistically speaking, if you're going to be murdered, you're going to be murdered by someone you know. You're not going to be killed by a random person. Um, a random person may want your wallet or something, but they don't want to kill you. Yeah. Generally speaking, crime in general, muggings, everything is committed within racial groups. And so the term black on black crime was the idea that like, oh, there's all this inner city, inner city crime. And it has nothing to do with um, this white supremacist system that is creates poverty and, and no opportunities for um that no upper mobility for black people. Um, and the fact that like um, when uh, certain groups of certain uh, populations within black populations uh, are engaged in more violent crime with one another, like it tends to be more violent because the stakes are higher because they're more likely to be shot and apprehended by cops than their like white counterparts. Yeah. Um, they're more likely to be charged. Well, and th- there's more, there's more, there's with, more police in that area. There's more police trying in the to, yeah, they're trying to figure out who has broken the law in a way. So I think, I, so I might, my point there, my point there is this, like having get that out of the way is that while I, I'm a little uncomfortable with term black on black crime being used like that, I do think that within your own social group, you're allowed to say, like, why are we killing each other? Like, we shouldn't, we shouldn't kill each other at all. Like, white people are already, you know, the, the white patriarchal, white, white supremacist society is already trying to do this to us. Why are we, why are we helping them? I get that judgment within, within, you know, the community is like, is allowed. Like, that sort of. It's still complicated. I mean, it's still very complicated. Yeah. Right, because it's been a like talking point of yeah. it's been a talking point of religious figures, um, uh, uh, you know, for forever, which is like, hey, don't don't kill each other. Like they're trying to kill you. Like we need to we need to have peace within the community. Like people should be able to go to school, like stuff like that. The problem is that that gets weaponized by white supremacist forces, and it gets turned into a dog whistle, which makes it a little bit stickier. And it's definitely way too sticky for us too. Yeah, like, yeah. We have to at least recognize that 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 is maybe a way the movie has aged that might make certain people upset 
Yeah, and I, again, I'm not entirely sure. It's sometimes because it is a very successful genre movie, is it just doing it from the sense of, hey, these are our characters, and our characters are black, and we're showing them get comeuppance because that's what all these movies do. Does it have a broader message of that? And again, does that message hit on, is it is it leaning towards, like, again, more of the Bill Cosby, like, you know, as, as they say in that documentary, like, became a lecturer to be responsible for your own oppression that because you are not able to rise above the systemic oppression the United States has done and like rise above all the different factors consistently, then you are just as much at fault. Like if you're uh, raised in poverty and selling drugs and, and that's your only way to, you know, economically support yourself that because you weren't able to overcome all of the factors that the system uh, is, is putting in your place, for all those reasons that you are culpable for, you know, for in this, you know, to, to extend that to this movie, for uh, your own demise into hell or something like that. And again, I don't know that's what this movie's saying, but this movie does have some of that in a way that I, again, to your point, Peter, it's different when it's coming from within within your own uh, uh, social group and stuff like that, but also just noting that even within that, leaning from the perspective of, of other uh, black people and people of color that I've read about, that's it, that that as it applies to some of the moralizing in this movie, whether it's just again horror trope moralizing or real moralizing, seems to be incredibly complicated in a way that I am not qualified to talk. About. Yeah, absolutely. That didn't stop it's us from talking about it for fifteen minutes, but yeah. <laughs> hopefully, I'm but sharing, gotta... hopefully I'm just recognizing other perspectives that I uh, I'm I'm not uh, saying. For, hey, from my perspective, here's what I think. Uh, what they should talk about or not. I am not saying. Yeah, it's good for us to smartly recognize our gaps, especially like, so like we can get to the the, the fun parts and not totally sidewind like what the themes of the movie are. Yeah, but I also don't want, like it's it's so clearly a part of this movie. It's hard to ignore it when Mm -hmm. like the way they talk about Clarence or like the final segment and at least not recognize like there's something there that I'm not sure if it holds up well or not. Yeah, and for the record, the Rogue Cop uh, Revelation is my favorite segment. Um, I'm trying to think if I... Why am I... I'm suddenly forgetting what the third segment is. Uh, so it's the next one is oh, no. Boys Do Get Bruised, I think, which is... A, so, yeah, I do think this is my favorite segment. I think the third segment is, like, pretty neck and neck in that. But when I first saw this movie and didn't know what to expect, Peter, besides people saying it was good, this was a opening gut punch of a, of a segment. Like, Oh shit. Yeah. This is relevant. This is, and yeah. I said, this, this feels like barely like the, with the exception of like the, you know, the, obviously the activists coming back from the dead and ripping balls off and putting them into paintings and stuff. The rest of this doesn't feel like the exaggeration of horror. This just feels like a, a documentary of what happens every day in America. Yeah. Absolutely, and I, and I think it's good that the, it's sandwiched the, the 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 perhaps sillier segments or the segments that could be construed as silliest um, are sandwiched between the the most sober and straightforward ones, um, or you know maybe not straightforward. I mean, the, the next one's pretty serious and, too, and, and, and dreadly serious. But boys do get bruised ends on a joke though. So boys do get bruised is about a little boy Walter. He's getting abused at school, um, and somebody tells him that he can draw his the monster the thing that that he hates he can draw it and then he can you know tear up the paper he can burn it and um that'll make the monster go away it's a sort of you know like a coping thing for little kids dealing with like you know like monsters in their their closet or whatever codify your pain and deal with it in a way that you can understand 
Yeah, yeah. Draw it out and and you can hopefully, you know, get it out of you. And um, so he's getting beaten up and he his teacher, uh, who's played by Rusty, um, is kind of keeping an eye on him because um, he's, you know, he's, he's coming he's with bruises up. He's and to, stuff. Yeah, he's coming. Yeah, he's coming home with bruises and he's like kind of sure some of them are not from the schoolyard because the kids in the schoolyard are beating him up. But it's not to this extent, like adult hands on him. Yeah. First, we see a peak in this power because uh, Walter draws a picture of one of his school bullies and then crumples it up. And then that kid has to go to, like, the ER. Like, he all of his bones, like, crack. Uh, Walter seems to understand a little bit of this power, but maybe he doesn't believe in it because, you know, his, his parents have told him it's bullshit. Everybody, it's it, all the adults in his life are like, that's not how things work, Walter. Like, you don't have a magical power. Uh, R- uh, Rusty Condiff uh, goes to, uh, you know, his uh, uh, named Richard. Well, hold on uh, really quickly, to... though. They do show these great little scenes of, like, him at home and this monster hand coming through, right? We just, we just, yes. so I, I think the expectation here, especially following the last segment, is that, like, they, he says he doesn't have a dad at home. And there's this monster that's terrifying him. And when he, when Rusty first goes to the house... Uh, he gets flirted with a little bit by the boy's mom, and she says that I'm yeah, my husband doesn't live here. So you, I think the 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 it does a good job of setting up the idea that oh shit, there's a monster at this house. Yeah, yeah, and and I, I you're, you're right. So the idea is that there's like a literal the, the fake out is there's a literal monster, and he he goes to the or at um, least a a uh, even when you meet David Allen Greer, who's like almost supernaturally serious and like unshowing emotion you're like oh he's a monster in disguise like for most of the segment the first time i assumed there would be a literalizing of the monster yeah yeah uh, but like the fake out is that you think there's a real monster yeah exactly and then yeah it's, i mean it, the there house, is a real monster this... it's just a like yeah. it's not a supernatural monster which is great yeah, so he gets to the house, he meets the, the, the wife who sort of flirts with him and is, like, happy to see, like, Richard, Richard, she's happy to see, like, a teacher caring for the, um, Walter, to, for her son, and then as soon as David, her, her whole tone switches as soon as David Allen Greer, um, shows up, um, He's like mad at her for not getting the door, and like she's like you know very much abused and, and on every level, right? It's, yes, yeah. she has to be domestic in very specific ways. It's actually like I feel like that's almost kind of similar to Leslie Nielsen as well, in a, in a, in a weird sense where they kind of cast they cast somebody who had like goofy chops so that they can nail a couple jokes, but like it's subverting that because he's terrifying. David Allen is so yeah. scary. Yeah. And he's, he's, he's so scary and he's so intense and he's just like, and it's one of the things that uh, Rusty and Darren were talking about in, in um, an interview. You were talking about like, oh, when you see this in a theater, people are laughing because it's David Allen Greer at first. And then the abuse goes on long enough. We had to cross this point with the abuse that people started taking it seriously. Because if we had the abuse on for 15 seconds, a lot of people could just be like, oh yeah, the dad came home and whacked, whacked, you know, his kids around and his wife around. Like that's. You know, that's like, I bet most of us could recognize that to some capacity, but like when it goes on long enough, nobody is laughing eventually. Right. Yeah. Um, and so they go up to, uh, so Richard leaves after being like, you know, pushed out of the house, essentially, um, almost threatened out of the house, I would say. And then, um, David Allen Greer immediately sets in on 
uh, his wife and his uh, his son, Walter. And uh, the wife for having a man in the house when he wasn't home and just generally just like, you know, just generally the shit that like abusers come up with, just random control shit that she somehow violated some random esoteric rule. And then Walter is being beaten because like a teacher had to come to to his uh, house a teacher had to come into his house and invade his space because Walter was drawing pictures at school again of these monsters. And uh, David Ellinger steps in the room and they do this really great trick um, where they're showing him in shadow. And he's got the claws and the and the, the big horned uh, sort of monster um, visage, you know, and in the shadow. And then apparently the way they did this was David Allen Greer just stood in the shadow and then he immediately just tore the mask off so that when he stands actually in frame and it's no longer just a shadow, that it's just him. Uh, which is really clever because it's a way to do that effect all in shot, all in camera, but you don't have to have a second actor or anything. David Allen Greer just walked in the room with a mask on and then tore off the tore off the mask in such a way that the, the shot kind of hides it. Yeah. Uh, it's really clever. And uh, Richard runs up into the room. He starts fighting with David Allen Greer. Um, and uh, Walter gets involved because Walter has drawn pictures of this monster um, that is his father. And he starts destroying the, the, the picture by crumpling it up. And then you see this shot of, do you know who did the special effects for the shot? Uh, yeah, Screaming Mad George. Screaming Mad George came I in. I told so you I watched recruited. the documentary, Pierre. Stop trying they to question me on the spot. You calling me a they liar? They sort of did special effects, like, guests for certain segments. So, like, the director and the writer are the same. Um, but, like, special effects guests to do, like, special, like, specific effects. Because yeah. they had, like, a generalist. And then they had, like, let's do Screaming Mad George for a couple seg- se- segments. He, he did what? this thing where, like, David Allen Greer is all wrapped up like a pretzel. <laughs> yeah, I know. Once, once I knew it was Screaming Mad George who uh, did did special effects on a lot of great horror movies society being probably the one that um is most impressive over a very impressive career but like it was very clear like oh yeah i can see that <laughs> because it is just twisting and melding the body in a horrific way that uh that seems uh impossible but also like not so impossible it doesn't feel somewhat realistic yeah he did effects he also did the devil effect at the end of the movie yeah. and apparently um apparently clarence williams the third hated being in that that devil costume and david Ellinger hated being in the the rubber mess um so uh he's he's all crumpled on the ground he said this ain't over yet bitch and so they burn the well no he stomps to, on it know, first at, Oh yeah, and they're yeah, like, yeah. "What are we gonna do with the body?" And the and the te- and, uh, teacher's like, "Hey, <laughs> it's just he looks at the stove like, hey, we got an easy way to solve this problem.' Uh, I love it. Yeah, it's great. It's a it's a it's a happy ending to an incredibly bleak story, but in, in sort of like a goofy goofy happy ending because like David Allen Greer is is just naturally funny, and they did leave a joke line for him once he's defeated. Like he becomes a joke. Yeah. Um, and it's really important that that lands as a joke after such bleakness. Well, right? and so, like a desperate, sad joke. Like what you literally got your body you're turned pathetic. into a yeah. pre- like yeah. at this point you hold no power and your primary focus is not, um, it's not like, oh my God, like what's happened to me? Your primary focus is this doesn't mean you win. I'm still controlling you. But I also just think it works as a great like twist of a movie, even though like the seeds for the drawing the paper, especially when the piece of paper falls and breaks that kid's leg <laughs> in school or whatever, yeah. um, like it's set up pretty well. It really feels like you're 
excuse me, you're getting the story of a uh, of a real monster. Um, and instead, you're you're essentially getting the story, uh, or sorry, a real supernatural like beast that's in disguise living in their house. Instead of you're getting the story of like a real actual real to life monster but a kid who has x-men powers <laughs> or like you know yeah 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 who can who can just write write their uh, their pain on paper and destroy it that way so it's a fun subversion and yeah a, kind of a rare happy ending for a, uh, a horror anthology as well uh where the monster is defeated and uh the kid presumably lives uh happy ever after and also gets told by his parents for the rest of his life don't draw pictures of your family <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> actually, you don't get cramps. Yeah, uh, how, have you heard? Ed, you know about edge sketches? <laughs> oh no, I'm being shaken away. Uh, the third segment uh, is really good. It is uh, again one that feels very uh, relevant and of its uh, both of its time very relevant. There's a Corbin Burnson plays this uh, former member of the KKK, like very obviously racist. Uh, doesn't stop the fact uh, whose family comes from a long line of family used to have plantations and slaves has a lot of political power. He's running for um, governor, I believe. I think he is a senator who's running for governor. I may have that backwards. Yeah, something like that. I mean, it's based on Jesse Helms. Yeah, but um, again, for, member of the KKK, racism and everything he talks has not stopped him from having political power. And um, the press is basically like. They ask him stupid shit like, are you racist? And he's like, of course I'm not racist. And like, that's the end of it. So again, a person who is like unambiguously evil, where none of the levers theoretically to stop evil people from gaining power, even though, of course, like those levers were created by people with equal, equally evil throughout our history, that we still celebrate as heroes uh, in many cases. So, I mean, understandably that that would be the case. That's how those systems are set up. But here's someone who, again, is not, by by all the different things they're supposed to hold people account, uh, there's no accountability. And so, uh, you know, in common horror tropes, like a supernatural force will, will dispel, you know, dispense justice where our natural forces have failed. So he moves back into this house and he starts getting seeing like there's a there's a a doll. People start dying or getting hurt around him. His campaign assistant, who's a person of color, who he's kind of using as a um as a shield from criticism for his own racism. Um which this is sort of a, a side thing, but I was I was watching the. Uh, I'm going through a bunch of Spike Lee movies right now. Just um, not not in preparation for watching this movie. Just a weird confluence of me trying to watch a bunch of directors. And I went through Ridley to Scott and Tony Scott. And now I'm on on Spike Lee. Um, but I watched. Uh, have you heard of his documentary Four Little Girls? Uh, no. About the the four uh, four girls who were uh, killed in the. Um, in the uh, in the uh, church explosion in uh, yes, yeah, yes, yeah. Yes. it came out in 1997 and they interviewed uh, 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 George Wallace who died in 1998 and George Wallace was obviously an incredibly like again someone else that this is probably modeled on to some effect because incredibly racist pro segregationist still was like governor 
you know, uh, for for a long time. He's actually one of the longest serving governors or history-wise pro-segregationists. Claims that he eventually found Jesus and was born again in the 70s and like backed off some of his his segregationist views. But like, so, so Spike Lee's interviewing him. This is in 1997, again, a year before he died. And he keeps saying that he's never been racist and he listens, you know, he made some mistakes, but he starts listing all these positive things he did for people of color back in the 60s, like bought bought textbooks for the quote-unquote black schools, which, again, is like, I I, I know, like, so the value of this, Errol Morris does this too, of having these, like, unambiguously evil people try to justify their crimes without interruption. I get that. So, like, obviously, part, part of the thing you're supposed to see as an audience member is, like, someone who was supporting segregation and Jim Crow and some of the biggest evils, like, Trying to justify that by at one point he approved funding. Like he didn't personally buy books, even though he phrased it like that, that he approved funding for for uh textbooks for a school, which should be a no-brainer. Anyways, is like that you're supposed to get that hypocrisy and that juxtaposition. So but then at one point he he says, Look at this, like, and he points to someone who he, he says, This person, this is a black friend of mine who's been with me my entire life and I couldn't do anything about him. So how could I be racist? Like it literally George fucking Wallace literally doing the, how could I be racist? I have a black friend and the Spike Lee pans the camera to this, this, this guy who looks like he would rather be anywhere else in the world than on camera in that moment. Yeah. Brutal. A hundred percent brutal. But like four little girls came out after, after this movie, but it's kind of that same, it's the same thing that, that they're setting up that like he is he is using without without putting the any sort of judgment from my own commentary here on on the people of color working on his campaign he is using those people as pawns and shields for to deflect criticism in the same way like george wallace was in that in that interview yeah and he uses dog whistles like get a job yeah and you know he's anti-affirmative action he uses all the a lot of the techniques that um that have been used by white supremacist candidates for a long time. And like, and because it's horror, Trumpy- it doesn't have to be subtle. It's very obvious and not subtle. And what's so like sickening and depressing about it is that again, it's not subtle. It's very obvious dog whistles. It's very obvious what racist people say to defend their racism. And again, it's still what you hear constantly from white supremacist Republicans and other candidates. Um, as a way to justify their own racism. Like they have there's been no evolution in the dog whistles, and if anything, they've degraded to the point that they get more and more obvious that, yeah, I'm just racist and no one's going to have the balls to call me out on that. That's something I keep seeing on TikTok from like uh uh just you know, random people, comedians, like particularly like comedians of color in general, but like um it, it, them being like uh yeah, actually, one of the advantages of this era is that, like, people don't dog whistle as much. They just kind of come out and say the racist shit. And you're like, I knew you were racist before, but now, like, everybody can see it. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, I see that I see that sort of sentiment passed around a lot on, on, on like, TikTok and on Twitter. And I, like, you know, I, I, I get it. Like, the, the feeling you're, like, spent so long just trying to land the truth which is that you know these jesse helms figures are racist and when someone's like oh why are they racist just because they want they want full employment is that does that make them because they think they think that black black people shouldn't be unfairly advantaged to get into college when my son uh you know greg worked so hard (laughs) yeah and then um 
Yeah, like, uh, and then people get into, like, fully racist essentialism of races, yeah. like, out, out, like, in public speeches, and it's like, yeah, man, like, that's, that's like, uh, you know, maybe, maybe in that sense, it's maybe less frustrating, because you knew they were racist either way, but at least this way, like, you know, nobody can say they're not. Yeah, I think, um, I think. Nobody, nobody can even play that sort of, like, tap dance game, where it's like. Well, but I, I, I think what's, inc- I think that's true. I think people have just become very obvious, and, like, they don't even hide behind the dog whistle or the subtext. You know, Donald Trump was a great example of that. They kind of made it, like, okay, in quotes, for everyone to just be like, yeah, you know, black people and Mexicans don't work so hard, or whatever. whatever else um but i think the problem though is that even everyone like mask off hood off and saying just racist shit are it actually shows like how far apparently people would have to go for the media to like it hasn't changed anything fundamentally like they're still doing all that stuff they're hiding it they're not hiding it behind the obvious wing wing nudge nudge and yet still it has no impact on like how many times did you hear like pundits or mainstream media like like question people who accused like wasn't like uh Elizabeth um shoot what was her name Warren Elizabeth Warren was like on 60 minutes after calling Donald Trump a racist and they're like what do you mean he's a racist do you really believe he's a this is like like year 4 of it's like obviously Donald Trump is a fucking <laughs> a fucking like white supremacist and and by then definition of a racist and it's like apparently the only thing that'll make the mainstream media identify someone as a racist if they individually are like just to let everyone know i am a racist <laughs> they they have to explicitly say it so i get that sentiment it's also just incredibly frustrating how as as people have gotten more obvious and hide less or hide less behind subtext it fundamentally hasn't changed like how easy it is to say that stuff and still like corbin bernson to tie it back out continue to hold his his power so essentially there's like this painting at this um at this at his house where these all these like little pictures of of, of wooden dolls around uh like a harriet tubman type figure and he notices that there's been this doll showing up as people in his life have been died or murdered just around his house that he can't seem to get rid of. And when he looks back at the painting, he sees there's one doll on that painting that is missing. There's basically, he learns that like the, the souls of the slaves who were killed by his family reside in that painting and they come out to enact justice. And that's eventually what you see these amazing scenes of like, you know, first the one doll who ends up, he ends up burning and killing. And then the next time he, he comes back in relieved and he looks back at the painting and like, now there's like 30% of the, the, the spaces are now white where the dolls were. And like, there keeps being more. And at one point then he finally like, he runs away. I killed one of you. I can kill more of you, blah, blah, blah. And then like, uh, at one point he looks at the painting and all the dolls are gone. Um, they end up killing him. And then at the end, the dolls are back in the painting. And again, justice has been served. Uh, Our society and the natural forces let him be powerful. And again, in that that kind of like uh, fantasy of horror movies righting the wrongs that society won't do, he has been finally removed from hurting people uh, by the supernatural forces and as... uh, as justice for the crimes him and his family had perpetrated over the centuries. Yeah, yeah. And apparently, in the original cut, they didn't have the the Jesse Helms figure getting um, killed on screen. It was an off screen thing. And during um, 
during test screenings, they were like, we absolutely want to yeah. people in the audience were like yeah we absolutely want to see this guy get torn up um which is pretty rad because uh, sometimes test screenings give people bad information yeah. uh and this one um this is uh great this information is i do want to see him ripped apart by little dolls yeah so speaking of sort of uh, anthologies in general obviously the little doll is like directly inspired by the zuni fetish doll from trilogy of terror um which i've seen people take that you know, take that back and, and be like, uh, people of color take that back and say, actually, I really like it because it's about, you know, colonialism coming home to roost and like colonialism, like, you know, destroying, a, destroying a, you know, a, a nice upper middle class home. Um, yeah. And then I've also seen people be like, yeah, it's just sort of trading on like fears of African culture and that like thinking of African culture as inherently violent or cursed is, is fucked up. So, you know, I, I can I can see both sides. Um but uh, this is definitely like an improvement on that front, right? It's it's less problematic on that front. Um, but uh, the the cool effect with that big painting and then a person disappearing out of the painting, yeah. the the sort of uh, Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth sort of like matriarch figure disappearing out of the painting yeah. is inspired by um, a Night Gallery episode. <laughs> um, so it's really pulling off of like, you know, a, a deep love of the show. It genre. reminds me a little too, obviously this came afterwards, but it reminds me a little of the orphanage too, where like, uh, I forget what it is. What is he? Is she knocking or whatever? And then every time she does the oh, knock, yeah. more and more, like, every time they cut back to it, there's more and more kids behind her. Yeah, it's like, uh, uh, un, dos, tres, and then oh, some yeah, sort like of, hide like, and seeker. To- yeah, I forget. I forget. It's been a while since I've seen the one. Toca something. It's, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's, yeah, Spanish phrase that she repeats a bunch of times. Yeah. So it's very adult. It's in my brain. Yeah, but I think, I um, think the, the, the idea of every time you look, there's more little, little things that are a danger to you. It's somewhat, uh, it's terrifying. Oh yeah, absolutely. And um, another note: um, the this is obviously like we talked about it earlier, but like yeah, the consultant getting paid, um, paid in in uh, murder. Um, even you know, even though he is a member of the black community, like him getting paid in murder, similar to the message of the first yeah. short and the last short. You know, it's sort of like you know, don't fuck us over, man. Um, and then uh, another note I want to make is that they. Similar to Screaming Mad George doing special effects in this, um, they hired these Chiodos brothers who are like puppetry specialists to make all the little puppets, and they look so cool. Yeah, they look, look so, they look so look cool. Um, also, in the special features, you get to see Corbin Burton uh, both pat himself on the back a bunch for doing this bit and also talk about how uh, in, in, how uncomfortable he was having to say the N-word over and over again. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he says, he says like, he, w- he was like, I, you know, I demanded everyone be quiet on the set so I could be like, apologize before I would do these these sets. And it, it very much feels like, you know, white apologetic liberalism. Um, it, I mean, there, there is true, anyway, though. So like, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I, I think that it's like, uh, when you're like, hey, I'm gonna just play a racist monster on screen because like it's a it's a part that i'm getting cast in like i imagine there's some i mean i'm sure there's there's probably some people that really do or like yeah i don't know maybe the people that don't want to do that don't take the, a role where you would have to do that i don't know it's comp- i think it's somewhat complicated uh yeah yeah but i also think like uh, helping uh i think helping um black creators tell a story that requires yeah. uh white characters is is a, is a good it's a good thing 
Uh, yeah, and I mean, he does. Uh, Corbin Burnson was probably one of the bigger stars in this movie when it came out, even though he was on the tail end of like his movie star and sitcom, or not sitcom. L.A. Law is not a sitcom, drama. I don't say comedy. You think I know L.A. Law? It was an hour long, so it was probably a drama. Um, but before he uh, went from those types of roles to uh, Dad from Psych. Um, Last one is, like, again, I think I really love the, like, Twilight Zone ending to this. Um, and I like some of the, the like, the imagery and the, the strobe light effect is very uncomfortable. It's probably the one that I have the least to say about, as I mentioned, like, thematically. Because um, it is, it's basically they show, uh, the last uh, body that they show is a, is a kid about their age. He's shown, like, getting into a, a drug fight with another gang. Uh, he ends up like bleeding on the street. He gets in the story ends up getting arrested and they say, Hey, we will either, uh, if you don't want to stay in prison, we'll take you to this experimental facility where you're basically going to, um, we're going to try to like, uh, uh, deprogram you for violence. And they essentially go through all this like trippy kind of strobe light effects where there's, He's fighting against people that are there. He's ready to kill people. You're wondering if, like, oh, is this part? It's you know, is the comeuppance or is the twist going to be that he kills his, I think his girlfriend or his sister or whoever's there, and like, uh, and he wasn't able to get help because he was so convinced that this horrific environment was real. And like, the twist is that he actually died on the street. He had got shot a few times by these these three people in shadows, um, and that was like his last whatever before he he died um and it may have been that he failed the test and got sent back to die it's kind of it's you know it's a story told by the a literal demon ultimately uh so <laughs> hard to gauge what's real or not you cut back to the um the the funeral parlor and uh the three the three kids are pissed they're like what the fuck is this we know this person why are you showing us this and it's because they're the three people who killed him and then, uh, yeah, the, the mortuary uh, proprietor brings them around, goes, actually, I have three more bodies I want to show you. Open up the, the caskets. It's them dead. Um, they go, they're angry. They're wondering what's going on. They, uh, they pull out their guns to shoot him, and the guns burn up in their hand. And he's like, you can't shoot him because you're, you're actually in hell. And he turns into a demon. The set fades away, and you see them literally like a great ending scene, even from like some shitty special effects. But it, like the the overall effect works so well that like it's easy to forgive some of the 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 matte painting or bad uh, green screen or whatever else it is. And they kind of are doing like a sizzle dance um, in the CGI fire or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Not, it's, it's got it's got it's like not quite main. Spawn background from like '97 Hell, but like. So it's a little close to that, but it still it still ultimately works. Like everything melts away, and now they're like gnashing and grinding their teeth uh, in hell. And again, I, from a thematic standpoint, like I, it's it's fun to, from a from a just a plot horror perspective. It is really fun to see these main characters and have that kind of Doctor Terror's twist, right? Uh, this whole this whole thing was less about. Um, them learning about this quirky mortuary proprietary and the bodies that he has laying around and more it was just a fucking demon fucking with three people that has that have actually been uh, transported to hell for their own crimes which include murder 
Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really good way to, to kind of wrap it up. I mean, the, obviously, the hardcore convert sec- section is like riffing on Clockwork Orange. Yeah. Um, it's using, but it's using like specifically segments of um, white supremacy and playing uh, rap music. Yeah. Um, I think hardcore convert is absolutely the segment that if you were to, um, it's definitely the one that I can feel like the most divisive sort of approaches to this. Like I could see this being a very controversial segment among, uh, among like, uh, like black reviewers or black audiences, because like on one sense it's, it's, it's message is very simple, but on the other sense, like I could see that it's seeming uh, paternalizing or, um, paternalistic, sorry, or, um, or uh, condescending yeah it's, it's um, that it's like, that like oh sorry you weren't able to rise above your own oppression like all the guilt falls in falls in you a little yeah. bit but it, but it, and i have one complaint about it one complaint about that last segment um that i can register that has nothing to do with anything i just said which is um uh similar to the cockroach segment in creep show um the sensory deprivation chamber yeah when the strobe lights are happening i eventually just look down at my me too yeah it, it's very uncomfortable like, yeah I can't look at I can't look at the screen for very long when when I like also used to have like seizures when I was a kid and I know this is completely irrational but some part of me is like is this gonna be the fucking thing like <laughs> I, this is so, gonna be the thing this a fucking horror movie the stupid section and Spec Ops the line is that gonna be the thing then <laughs> like I said it really works as like the subversion of the horror thing it's like you think it's a story about this last person that kind of matches the structure instead it's not his story it's this the three main character story and that's why like from a pure horror like setup twist perspective it works really well it works it works great as a way to really you know why well you know to kind of get into wrap up a little bit why this one in the same way creep show works really well like this has a fantastic wraparound story that makes sense why it's weaving in these stories and then has a, a way to make the ostensibly the main characters of the movie who are the wraparound segment participants have something where they're they're part of the overall themes in the story that's going on. So from that perspective, from a like a from a pure just like how these anthology movies work and when they work well and the way that twist works and the reveal at the end that's so fantastically delivered uh that all works really well but agreed like thematically and everything else the actual story getting there it's the least interesting of the of the four yeah yeah it's it's um yeah for sure and i think the wraparound segment like how they get there is clumsy for me like it was all a dream like doing an occurrence at owl creek bridge thing is kind of silly because i'm like wait what is the wasn't a dream it was a uh torture inflicted yeah it's just the it just doesn't it's just like it's kind of feels cheap but once you get over that revelation and you get to the point you're like oh these three criminals from the beginning of the movie um are the you know that's their this is their story wrapping up they shot this guy once you get to that point you're like oh this this actually works i just think how they get there is kind of yeah kind of um it does like a a a little uh, awkward elephant walk but then it you know climbs up a mountain it's it's pretty it's pretty great yeah, it is. It is really great. And again, the so many, you know, Peter and I will give so much passes to like anthology movies. And I mean, we're going to talk about this in a couple weeks with VHS viral, where I, I think our message there will be, hey, 
It has three amazing short films within a shitty wraparound section. People focused on the wraparound section and they didn't give the short films and the, the segments credit. It's really, really good on that merits and like you should give credit to. And that's because it is true that like an anthology movie doesn't need like to be a complete wonderful movie experience in order to be a good movie. It's the advantage of having segments. You can say, you know, Peter, you and I have talked so many times. We talked about this when I watched Nightmare Cinema and stuff like that. It's like, yeah, how do you rank these things, right? Like one segment's an A+, plus, two segments are are uh, a B or a B-, minus. one's an F. Like it averages out to, to three, three and a half stars. And like, that's okay. You talked about that at the beginning of this episode. Like, Worse, or maybe it was at the end of last episode. Not that we recorded them the same night, and I can't tell can't tell the difference. But like worst case scenario, if there is something that's shitty, you're gonna watch it for ten minutes, and you're gonna move on to a new premise, and you can get reengaged. And like those are all fine. Those there's so the anthology movies work that way. It's one of the advantages of the of the of the format in general. It's easier to forgive the weak stuff, and it's it's fun to praise the really strong stuff. Then you have the very rare movie where it all works as a complete movie. The wraparound segment makes sense and works with the rest of the stories. There's strong themes tying it together. Each individual story has a lot of merits and like, you know, they they all range from good to great uh, or at the very least, no stinkers. Tales from the Hood, like I think I would say Creepshow and, you know, a few of the Amicus stuff and you know, maybe even the first VHS movie and a few others, like, they are rarefied in a genre with hundreds and hundreds of examples. And so, yeah, if if this is something that, like me, you passed over because it just didn't seem like anyone else was talking about it, we're not the first people to start talking about it in the last few years, but let us be the whitest <laughs> to really say... Holy shit, Tales from the Hood rules. And uh, if you are looking for an anthology movie or just, again, to, to watch more horror movies uh, directed and written by, you know, uh, black creators, cannot recommend this one high enough. Yeah. If you're looking for a good time, welcome to heaven, m- Mother Friender. Mother Friender? Yeah. You don't th- you think you can say motherfucker in heaven? Yeah, probably. It's just a term of endearment up there. But what if I'm in heaven and they kick me out for saying it? You think Jesus would be annoyed because no one fucked his mother canonically? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, on earth, yes. Um, actually, do you think Chris? Do you think Christians like their faith being like referred to like it's canonical or not? <laughs> do you, I mean? I'm sure there's like actual fields of study. There is like. Did Mary have sex after the virgin birth? Oh, 100%. Like, I, I'm not even saying that facetiously. Like, uh, but yeah, there are Christian sects that believe that they didn't stay a virgin forever, and that's why Jesus had brothers. Yeah, it'd be kind of a bummer for Jesus. Eventually, too. she boned down with Joseph, and they have kids, and there's, you know, they're technically Jesus's half brothers. Yeah, she's like, yeah, half- I'll give birth to, you know, the Messiah, and I'll give birth to the, 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 the you know, the Son of God, but like, you want me to stay a virgin forever? Didn't you invent sex? A lot of holes in this story. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Well, I mean, um, in her story up to that point, there were very few holes. <laughs> Not that we're used. Uh, yeah, what a fun way to end this uh, this epi. Uh, but yeah, next week we're doing a double header to compare to to prepare us for our um, pen penta header. <laughs> Sure. 
or Pentecost. I'm going to need you to say it a little bit more confidently, but yeah. Pentaheader, which is we're doing to the... I, I, I actually, I didn't realize how much debate there was around what the best Amicus ones. I thought that uh, Tales from the Crypt and Vault of Horror were generally considered the best. It seems like what From Beyond the Grave is considered. I think maybe? Asylum is the is probably the average respected, most respected one. I adore From Beyond the Grave, but I, if you let me get a, if you let me get into that list, I, I, we would have ended up doing fucking forty movies this month. So. Yeah, I actually, I mean, for what it's worth, I have seen all, but uh, I think the one that is generally considered not so good, uh, I forget what it's called. Um, it has a less chilling title uh, at this point, and I, I actually consider uh, Vault of Foreign Tales uh, from the Crypt my two favorites. I love From Beyond the Grave, I love Dr. Terrors, I like uh, Asylum, uh, but I, I think the two we're doing are my favorites, but I'm Mine sure. Too. Mine too. Yeah, perfect. From so, Beyond the Grave great. is like really close, but I think we're doing the two favorites. Yeah. Uh, and I actually think, if I remember correctly, I think I like Vault of Four even better than Tales from the Crypt. So, um, but we'll see if that holds up because I haven't seen them since uh, you first pressured me to watch it like six years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I bought that uh, double Blu-ray and thank God because, yeah, I'm going to watch it this weekend. I'm excited. We're going to talk about the original 1972 Tales from the Crypt and its quasi-sequel of uh, Vault of Horror. Uh, and then we're going to wrap up with watching five goddamn VHS movies. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Night! Evil lurks in the mind of a madman. I have to call Spice One to put in work. Yeah, straight motherfucking East Bay killing the house. Spice motherfucking one. That's how you do it. You just mob up on the shoot him in his motherfucking head and drag him out the car and get your motherfucking mob on. Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand. And you want to support the show. Show, we truly absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, we really do appreciate you uh, with kisses and smooches. Peter and Aaron. <laughs> Mm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs>